Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast. Today we'll be doing a spotlight on adult men with hemophilia. And my guest for this episode is father, musician, advocate, and fellow community member, Jeff Johnson. We talk about what it means to be a blood brother, how it's changed over the years, and what the future looks like. We'll be back with Jeff Johnson after this quick break. I'm Jeff Johnson, and I'm a severe-ish hemo, uh, factor eight. Um, I've been involved in the community my whole life. Um, well, I guess since I was like six or seven. Um, the first part of my life was in Montana, and there wasn't really much community in Montana in the early 80s at that time. But we ended up moving to the Portland area, and I went to summer camp for the first time, and I met another hemophiliac for the first time, which was super cool. Um, and I've been a part of the community since then. I eventually went from camper to junior counselor to counselor and joined the board and I've been activist and, and uh, advocate since then. I work in the industry now um, and I still maintain you know, my activist tendencies. So a lot of people know I have a lot to say. So, Would you explain a little bit about what being a blood brother means? It's an interesting question. Um, for me, so when you say blood brother to me, I immediately jumped to my demographic, those of us who lived through the hemocost, who had bad blood, who are dealing with the PTSD from that, who, who have a lot of friends that we've lost along the way. So, so that's who I immediately think of when you say blood brother. And so I think of survivors, a lot of pain, a lot of survivor guilt, um, and not very many of us. We're pretty, we're smaller and smaller group within the community, an already small community every day. Um, so that's who I first think of when I think of blood brother. But in reality, Blood Brothers, any guy or anyone who identifies as a guy that has a bleeding disorder. So I've got infant Blood Brothers. I've got high school Blood Brothers. Um, so I guess it's it's a kind of a, it's a dual question there. So it really depends, I guess, on the context of what it's being asked. It's hmm. interesting that you brought up the first part um, with, uh, you know, kind of like seeing it through a different lens of what Blood, blood, blood ooh, excuse me, Blood Brother means. Um, would you say that I know that you said it's increasingly getting smaller group. Would you say that that is a tight-knit group of uh, people? I think there is a core of us that are pretty tight-knit. Um, you know, what we went through really bonds you closely together. You can't go through that. And even there's blood brothers that maybe I don't like and don't like me, but we're still blood brothers and we'd still be there for each other you know, at any time. Um, so the few of us that there are, I'd say we are tight-knit. Um, there is also, I think people don't realize in my demographic, there's a lot of older hemophiliacs, older men with hemophilia that are not connected to the community because it just got all so weighty and so heavy on them that they basically punched out and left. So for, you know, there's a few of us that I'm, I'm lucky to know a few of them. They don't have any community connection, but I know them because maybe I saw them once here or there. Um, so we are tight knit. But I don't think we're as tight knit as we could be just because the trauma that we all shared fractured us in some ways. Have you seen a large change? Um, I think, you know, obviously from a medical standpoint, but also from a community standpoint, like, um, you know, has the community grown more accept uh, more open since when you were younger? Yeah, the, I mean, the community today, I've seen the community change dramatically, probably three or four times. We've evolved so many times. So when I was a kid and I first went to summer camp, you know, there was no social media. So you only saw other hemophiliacs at camp or if you happened to run into them on your treatment day. So the community then was basically 
summer camp and, and treatment center clinics. And then after a while, it started to get bigger where they'd have events outside of camp. So it felt like camp, but you were only there for one day and then you got pizza. Um, but you still really weren't keeping in touch with each other outside of that. We had, there were groups like COT and advocacy groups that were fighting, you know, the legislative battle to get clean blood and get restitution. Um, but that was like um, phone trees and, and, you know, chain letters at the time. There wasn't really this sense of community where we were all tied in. You could live two miles from a blood brother and not even know it. So that was kind of, I guess, the second iteration was like, it was more than just camp, but it wasn't really a big burgeoning community. Um, and then the next iteration was the advent of the internet and the advent of chat rooms and message boards and social media. We started to connect in very real ways, even if we weren't geographically linked. And so that brought us together because it brought us together outside of things like camp or legislative drives or advocacy. It brought us together on a personal level. And so that's where we, I think, I think that was maybe the peak of the hemophilia community because we really started to connect as family then. Uh, we were connected before and kind of uh, like we were going to battle. You know, you were connected the way that a squad of Marines is connected when they're going to battle. You know, you're, you're there, but you didn't necessarily choose to be there. You had to be. So with the advent of the Internet and social media and everything, we were able to connect with each other just because we had shared experiences. And so that was, like I said, I think maybe the peak of the community. Um, now we're going through another evolution where the medication has made it such a manageable disease for so many that people are starting to maybe connect less. There's less of a need there. So, you know, for us, having just one other hemophiliac in your life, one other person that, that walked in your shoes every day was, it meant everything because we were always the person outside of the group, wherever we were. If we were at school, if we were at work, if we were for our family, we were always the only hemophiliac we knew. So that, that brotherhood was really intensely needed. Now today, you've got kids that they may hit middle school and never had a bleed. So they don't really view it as I'm an outsider looking in because they're able to play sports. They're able to live a bleedless life. Um, and, and of course, this isn't universal. You're always going to have you know, kids with inhibitors or, or just really severe. So there's always going to be those. But the large core group of the community, I think, I don't know if moving on is the right term, but I think they're evolving closer to the dream that we had. You know, we always wanted to get to a point where we could just live a normal life, normal according to the stereotypical normal. And I think today you're just starting to see the community reach that. And so as they reach that and there's less need for us, I think the community is somewhat fading, I guess. I mean, and that sounds really cynical, but um, it's kind of beautiful in a way because we were brought together out of this great need to help each other and lift each other up. And so if you no longer have that need to lift each other up, it's because it means you're not being held down anymore. So I don't begrudge that everybody's kind of moving on. Um, there's a little tinge of sadness because I know how great the hemophilia community has been for me. But um, yeah, I think that's the evolution that we're in. So whatever the next evolution after that's going to be, you know, maybe we just dissolve altogether and hemophilia becomes the next like asthma or, or just a really over the counter treated disorder. So yeah, I've seen a lot of evolutions over the years, and some of them good, some of them bad. Um, I'm glad that I got what I got out of it, and I'm glad that kids today have it there if they need it. And I think it's really great that if they don't feel they need it, it's because they're living such a thriving life. Do you find that you're happy to see that there is so much, you know, access to, me like, to mental health awareness, especially within, like, 
hemophilia and rare disease in general? Because I think that is a big component of it. You know, I think, so mental health issues are rampant in the community. And I think there's a belief that they're somewhat new and that's entirely false. It's just that we're just now realizing it. I can tell you way back in the day, so when I was a teenager, when the Ricky Ray money started flowing into the community after the AIDS settlement, most of the guys, so I knew of Ricky Ray recipients I knew at the time, they were either dead and it went to their family or they were still alive and they were dying. And so it honestly went up their nose. And I knew very few that, that thought, you know, I just got this check. What am I going to do with it for my future? Because back then there was no future. So there was mental illness problems back then. And we all reached a point where it became too much. So for me personally, I was at this point where I was trying to be active in the community. I had joined the board at my local chapter. I was really trying to be a leader. I was, I think I was 19 at the time and my friends were all dying. And as more of the older generation died, parents who were left took their places on things like the board and committees and stuff like that. And so there were these competing interests that were honestly, sometimes board meetings were shouting matches. So I had this community turmoil, all of my friends dying and it got too much for me. And I checked out of the community. I call it my HEMA walkabout, but I checked out for seven years. I left the community and I'm not proud of it, but I had to do it for my own mental health at the time because I didn't want to sink into drugs or alcoholism. I didn't want it to pull me under, but it felt like I was drowning and I was being pulled down by the weight of everything that we had been going through and the bitterness and the hard feelings. So even back then in the mid nineties, mental health was a huge issue and there was nothing for us at the time. You didn't talk about it. There weren't, there wasn't a support structure. You just hemoed up and dealt with it. And so I dealt with it by going out. Um, I, delved into music as deep as I could. For a while, I became a jazz musician and I got to tour and play my sax and I got to go to China and, and that was really cool. And I focused on college. Um, I ended up meeting my wife during that time. And I became, I was able to find who Jeff was without hemophilia. Um, I never really hit it, but I pushed it to the back. And, and that's the only, honestly, the only reason I can say I'm probably alive today. Because if I had stayed in the community at that time, the mental anguish, emotional anguish, the physical toll that all that caused, I probably wouldn't have survived. Even though I didn't get HIV, I got hepatitis, but I didn't get HIV. I, I just, it was hard. It was really hard. So I'm, I'm glad mental illness is being talked about now. In fact, we just hit the anniversary of uh, a friend of mine named Barry taking his own life. Um, and Barry was a leader in the community. I mean, everybody looked up to Barry. I, I don't even have to say his last name. Anybody that hears this would know who I'm talking about. Um, he was a pillar of the community. He was a good friend of mine. And he was a hero to a lot of people. He was the model. You know, he was the wise Obi-Wan Kenobi that a lot of people looked to. And it was killing him inside to the point where he ended it. And it shocked us all. I mean, it, it, I was on vacation and I got the call that Barry had died and how. And it completely just it pulled my feet out from under me because it brought back everything we went through in the late eighties and early nineties, because that's, that's really what killed Barry. You know, Barry ended it when he did, but he was a victim of what we all went through in the eighties. Um, and if there had maybe been a more open dialogue about mental health and especially the fact that the people that are hurting the most are often the ones who portray the most strength, then maybe Barry would have felt comfortable reaching out or somebody would have reached out to Barry. 
Um, and I probably shouldn't have even said his name. I guess I don't know if you can use this, but my friend, my friend died, I think because he felt the burden and the weight of everything we survived and also the burden of carrying us all on his back. And I, sometimes I really regret that we weren't there to carry him. Mm. So. I really thank you for sharing that. That's I'm so sorry. And it also just shows how much mental health is a part of this. It's not just, you know, one, one part of an illness. It's, you know, there are lots of components. You said you took a, a, a step away your walkabout <laughs> from Hema, yeah. the Hema community. What brought you back though? What kind of brought you back and then now set you on your journey, like where you are now to up to where you are now? So I had been completely disconnected. Um, and I'd only had infrequent, like, I feel bad about it, but I, when I disconnected, I disconnected hard. Um, and then at a certain point, there's a series of events where, you know, sometimes life just tells you it's time, man. I had gotten a really bad bleed. And at the time, the ACA, there was no ACA. And so I had aged out of my parents' health insurance. I couldn't buy my own insurance. I was a college student working part-time, so I didn't have employer insurance. So I had no access to factor and I couldn't, I couldn't get it. Um, and a friend of mine from the camp days, um, he's like, all right, man, meet me at Fred Meyer. And so I met him at, at the grocery store and he gave me a couple of bleed doses and that's how I got through that bleed. And so he was the first I had had any connection to the hemophilia community in a while because he was there to save my life. Um, and then shortly after that, um, a friend of mine from the old days had passed. I, I, um, I'd left work. I had a voicemail. It was from the executive director at the time. And so I checked the voicemail and, and she had told me that a friend of ours had passed who had been one of my closest friends. One of the guys that I looked up to who taught me how to be a hemophiliac, who taught me how to be a guy outside of hemophilia. Um, and AIDS finally caught up to him and he died. So I went to his funeral. Um, I hadn't been to a funeral, a hemo funeral in a while. So that brought me back in and I saw a lot of the old faces that I, I recognized. Um, I saw my friend that had just helped me out with the bleed doses. Um, and so that, that kind of added to that. And then shortly after that, I was actually at work and I worked at a uh, target at the time and the executive director for the, the foundation just happened to come through buying groceries. And was like, you should come back to camp. We're doing signups right now. And I, and I was like, you know, I should, I, I, I should. Cause, um, we had just, so we'd lost my friend. We'd lost another friend shortly after that, who was, he was so important to the community that like the camper of the year award is now named after him. He was a good friend of mine. So we lost him shortly. So after two deaths, after me going through that hemophilia issue, I was just like, okay, life's calling me back. And I was at that point where I thought, if I'm going to go back, I'm going to really go back. I'm not going to go back and like half-ass it. You know, too many of my friends are gone. Um, there's not very many people that even remember me. So if I'm going to go back, I'm going to try and speak for me and for all of them. So I went back to camp. I joined the board. I started reaching out to people around the country. Um, and yeah, it's kind of like the Godfather. You know, you try to get out, but they keep pulling you back in. And, <laughs> and with hemophilia, they've got you by the blood, so they really get you back in. It's literally, it's in the blood. It's yeah. <laughs> well, it's so funny you said that. It, you know, and I think you you hit it on the head of saying like hemophilia has defined your life. But there was a point where it seems like like you were like, I can't, I can't let this define my life anymore because it truly, it it was 
it was all consuming. And so in a way, stepping away and not letting it define your life, then it's still there. It's still defining your life, but it, it brings you back in maybe a better, healthier way and really reinvests, you know, you're back in the family. <laughs> but yeah. but in a, in, a, in a more, maybe in a way, do you feel like it was in a way that you felt, oh, I don't want to say you had more control over, but there, it was just a better situation, maybe mentally. Uh, maybe I like to talk to, about it in, in a sense of balance. So if I hadn't stepped away, then the hemo side of the scales would have been really heavily weighted, and that just would have been everything. It would have been everything I am, everything I ever would be. By breaking away for a while, I was able to put some weight on the just Jeff side of the scale, and so when I came back, I was able to come back with those scales more healthily balanced. So that I do have the part of me that's outside of hemophilia, the part of me that loves playing saxophone, that loves to write, that loves going to beer fests, that loves watching Star Wars, that loves spending time with my wife and kid, completely independent of hemophilia. And because I'm so comfortable in that zone, I'm also comfortable completely putting on the hemo hat and, and wearing it to conventions and wearing it to work every day and wearing it when friends call me up and ask for hemo advice. So um, I definitely think for me, that that helped achieve that balance that made me a more whole person. Hmm. It's really like, as a, I think maybe as a younger generation, being able to see that too is very um, uplifting to know that like, I mean, I know anybody that has, has good balance in their life, at least with certain things, it's very helpful to see that and know that that's possible. I think overall, we have this term that we, I don't even remember who thought it up. I don't think it was me, but we call hemo strong. And it's for hemophiliacs, fond willies, the PSPs, anybody with a bleeding disorder, hemo strong is really about owning your disorder. And if you own it, then that makes you strong enough to actually go out and live the thriving life that you want. Um, and I guess if I can impart anything, from the young kids who are just starting out to even the, the stubborn old guys like me, it's, it's really to be hemo strong. Own your condition, which means respecting the limitations, which means being disciplined about your treatment, which means really acknowledging the effect that it has on your life and owning it so that you can then make it your strength and you can go out and live the life that you want instead of the life that you're allowed. Um, if that's what it's all about. And um, I think, you know, a lot of times, especially, you know, parents who are new to the community, they look for what activity is hemo safe or what's hemo allowed. And, and my, my outlook is that there is nothing that's hemo safe and there's nothing that's not hemo safe. There's just a world out there that we need to go out and figure out a way to live in. And so, you know, if, at the end of the day, I hope when people think of Jeff Johnson, they think fondly, because I know that not everybody does. But I, I think if, if people think of Jeff Johnson's, they think that he helped me be strong enough to live the life that I deserved. So. Thank you, Jeff, for being with us. Bloodstream team for your work on this series. Thank you all for listening. And thanks to Kata for being the presenting sponsor of the Bloodstream podcast. Check out bleedingdisorders.com to learn more. Circle back to hear all the episodes celebrating Bleeding Disorders Awareness Month and find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Everybody's pain is different, and I know mine is really bad for me. Pain is a part of life, but what if it never stopped? Chronic pain in and of itself is actually an epidemic. Approximately 50 million adults in the U.S. suffer from chronic pain. So what do we actually understand about pain? 
Neuroscience is kind of like the final frontier of science because we just do not understand the brain like people think we do. On The Pain Podcast, we explore this and other pain-related questions by talking with patients and clinicians about what it's like to manage, treat, and live with chronic pain. Even with pain, I'm worth something. You can find The Pain Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and on bloodstreammedia.com.